if you can get the the project in your head in such a way that it's consuming every moment of your of your of your life,、uh, that's actually a good thing because then in all the down times,、uh, all the times when you're not in front of the keyboard, your brain is still working on it. I I, I find that to be like the best state to be in. Well, this is the writers、uh, who don't write but are also tired. So I just want to clarify that、uh, every time we record this, one of us is like either sick or has allergies or records. It's because every time we're doing an intro, it's like ten or eleven o'clock at night on like a Tuesday. I mean, I feel like this fits though with all of the interviews we've ever done with writers, where they're like, you know, for the first five or so years, I was just doing it after work, and it was something I had to do in my spare time, and it was a passion project.、Uh, it feels like it fits the theme of the show that we're always exhausted after doing our day jobs. It's true. I I have a ton of like side projects that I've been doing recently.、Uh, one of which, as a, as a quick shout out for me. Is、um, I, shouting I at myself here? I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I have a podcast column for the Daily Dot now. It's just like every other week I'll review somebody else's show. But it is funny because we,、uh, I, I had a, a piece due yesterday, and I didn't like get time to start working on it until like 11 p.m. And at that point, I was just like, honestly, like I can lose this column. I don't care. I need to sleep. So I went to bed and I, I woke up this morning and wrote it. We've we've hit that point where I'm like sleep. Has become、uh, an imperative. Just in case I didn't like mention this, because I do want this to be promotional as hell. That column is for the Daily Dot. So if you just、oh、Google, oh God, get over it! Stop、Google、patting yourself on the back. Jeff Ombro, Daily Dot, you're good.、Uh, in any case,、um, this is a good transition for who we have on the show this week because he also started his career writing in the Twilight Hours. Who's on the show this week, Kyle? This week on the show, we have an exciting guest. We have Ken Liu on the show.、Uh, the series is called "The Dandelion Dynasty." The book that I just finished in "The Dandelion Dynasty" is called "The Grace of Kings," and I'm very excited to get on to the next one.、Um, we, so, if we, you did the reading for this week, if you're as much of a, a fantasy nerd as I am, you probably very much enjoyed it. If you didn't, I would suggest you go back and do so before we get into the interview because we talk a lot about the Grace of Kings and the previous things that、uh, Ken has written. So there's also the second book, which is out、uh, third. He's writing now, and then he also has a collection of short stories called the Paper Menagerie.、Uh, in that collection is a story that is actually called the Paper Menagerie that、uh, did something unprecedented. It won all three of the like the 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 hat trick of all the science fiction awards that are awarded, the Nebula, the Hugo, and the World Fantasy Awards.、Um, And nobody's ever done that before in the same year. So he's also been nominated for like two other Hugo's for works in translation from Chinese literature and all kinds of just crazy, amazing stuff.、Uh, he he talks to us about that, about his work habits.、Uh, there is one story that was very difficult、uh, for him to write that was in the Paper Menagerie collection, which I loved.、Um, in a strange way, once you hear what the story's about.、Um, so let's get into it. But before we do, I just want to tell everybody that we are now on Spotify. So if that is your preferred listening method, you know you can jump in. We've been legitimized as artists.、Uh, I think I can say that now that I am an artist. Do they list us as artists on Spotify? Our names are there. Right, but like, what do they say? Are they like artists? The artists, Kyle、yeah. and Jeff. 
It just says the writers who don't write podcast by Jeff Umbro and Kyle Craner. Notice whose name is first, Kyle. But anyways, let's get to the interview. Welcome, Ken. Uh, thank you for having me, Jeff and Kyle. Yeah, of course. Uh, That's so know, nice we, of you. You're maybe the first one who's included me in your thank you. Um, <laughs> I already, I think I'm going to like this interview. It's so funny. It's because I'm the one that does most of the email outreach. Uh, everybody just assumes that it's it's a show that I do on my own, and Kyle's here for like support or something. Uh, <laughs> moral support. I'm mostly yeah. moral support. Yeah. Which makes me really happy, but you know, I'm sure it gets old for Kyle. So. <laughs> no doubt. You know, I'm happy. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> just happy to be here. That, that's the best kind of co-host you want, right? <laughs> right. He does all the all the tough work. All I have to do is show up. So, but anyway, Ken, we have you on the show today because you know we're huge fans of you uh, and and the work that you do. Um, initially, I heard about you because you. Uh, had kind of like a trifecta win of awards that had never been done before for your short story, The Paper Menagerie. So I guess we'll just start there. Do you want to tell our listeners just a a brief synopsis of what that story is about? Oh, sure. Uh, First, uh, thank you very much. Uh, And two, it's a little funny to hear that uh, The Paper Menagerie is the reason that uh, you found out about my work. it's not one of my favorite stories, actually. Uh, really? I, 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 I barely think about it, honestly. Um, so The Paper Menagerie is an important story for me, uh, but it's not it's not a story that I thought was um, one of my best works. Basically, uh, The Paper Menagerie is, is an interesting story to talk about because it does, uh, in, in some ways, capsulize all of my, uh, a lot of my themes and a lot of my techniques. Uh, it's a story about a boy uh, who's an American boy whose father, quote unquote, bought his mother from a catalog. She is what we would call a mail order bride. And she came to the U.S. from Hong Kong. Initially, when the little boy was was very small, uh, he 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 loved these paper origami animals that his mother would make for him. Uh, she uh, had this magical power where, after she finished folding uh, and creating an animal, she would breathe into it, and the animal would come alive. Uh, and so, the early part of the story uh, involves the little boy playing with these animals and and getting them to do all kinds of uh, things uh, that are just fantastical. Uh, and then later on, when the boy is a little bit older, he begins to realize from his friends and neighbors that they viewed his mother uh, as, as an outsider. Uh, and, and in turn, they viewed him as an outsider. Uh, his mother does not speak English very well. Uh, and, and, and she taught him uh, as a little child to speak to her in Chinese. Uh, and, and so once his friends and neighbors begin to make him feel odd about it. He starts to uh, distance himself from his mother and begins to, to refuse to speak Chinese. And, and his, his friends, uh, he showed his friends these uh, paper animals uh, that his mother had made. And, and his friends said, well, these are just trash. They're, they're made from wrapping paper. Uh, you know, check out my Star Wars figurines. Uh, so the little boy felt uh, that everything he had known before uh, that he, he thought was so special turned out to be something that the society at large did not value. Uh, and so he 
distanced himself from his mother and, 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 and in fact resented his mother for making him, marking him as unusual, as different from everybody else. Uh, and it's not only until he became an adult, uh, after his mother had died, that he discovers her secret uh, and, and comes to realize that um, how wrong he had been to reject her and, and, and to not understand uh, what her love for him had meant. So that's the story. Uh, it's, a, it's a magic realism story. It's not sci-fi uh, or really fantasy uh, in, in the sense of high fantasy. Uh, it's a magic realism story. Obviously, the the paper animals that come come to life uh, is meant as a metaphor uh, for mother's love and for that kind of magical bond between mother and child uh, before society at large reads its values into that relationship. Uh, and, and I've always being particularly interested in writing stories that use the speculative element in that way, whether it's sci-fi, fantasy, or magic realism, or historical fiction, uh, the speculative element uh, in my stories always serves a metaphorical function rather than strictly uh, literally read as what it is. For our listeners, uh, you can read this story in Ken's collection, which is the same name, The Paper Menagerie, which you can get wherever books are sold. Uh, but it's also republished on io9, which is a really popular science fiction website for anybody that doesn't know. Uh, so you can just Google it and get a taste for it to see if you want to get the whole collection. Um, but Ken, what, what really stuck with me after I read it is, uh, you know, how simple it was. Cause it was everybody I, you know, I assume can relate to some kind of story where, uh, they have this piece of their childhood that they love so much that then they realize is not necessarily something that anybody else has experienced, whether that's, you know, sports or video games or, or, you know, origami. It just struck me as something that like everybody could relate to. Was that, yeah. in, was that intentional? I, I, I think so. I mean, I don't know how intentional it was, but I, I, I do believe very much in the idea that the more specific you make a detail, the more universal it becomes. Uh, I, I think to write about universal themes, you don't you don't start out thinking about universal ways to represent universal themes. Uh, universal themes only have actual existence uh, when embodied in particular specific details, uh, and, and so I think that is true. I think I think the idea of um, uh, of, of feeling like an outsider, of, 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 of treasuring something very important to you, only to have uh, the society at large uh, um, mock you or, or, or mark you as an outsider because of it, is, is a universal experience. Uh, because, you know, as much as we're social creatures, we're also very unique in the way that we, we, we come to form our consciousnesses. And mm -hmm. There are there are things about ourselves that are precious, that are that are unique, uh, that are ours alone, uh, and and we all have that experience of trying to share that unique, beautiful part of ourselves with others, only to find out that um, society is a cruel and 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 cold place, uh, and and people are are often cruel intentionally as well as unintentionally, uh, and that moment when that beautiful thing that you're trying to show the world is um, is, is mocked, uh, and is, becomes a very important formative moment for us. Uh, mm -hmm. and sometimes we react to it incorrectly. Uh, we react to it, uh, in, in a way that, uh, implies that we should reject those parts of ourselves and try to make ourselves like everybody else. You know, if, if you're, yeah. 
if you're really into video games or something and then people make fun of you for it, the, the answer is not to stop loving video games and to, uh, to, to just try to become like everybody else. That, that's, that's not the answer. But sometimes it takes us a long time to, to, to realize that. Why isn't it your favorite story? Um, so it's a story that I, I, I liked a lot at the, at the time when I wrote it. Uh, the, the problem is that that story has often been misread uh, in an unfortunate way, uh, which makes it hard for me to uh, approach it uh, the same way that, you know, I, I, I intended it. Um, the story has often been read as some sort of cultural conflict story between being American and being, Chi being Chinese, and somehow as somehow metaphorical for my own life, which is kind of preposterous and ridiculous. Uh, I've often uh, asked readers, you know, if, if a white author had written a story like this, would you ask them that if this is somehow inspired by their autobiographical life? Uh, and of course they wouldn't. So why why do they do that to me? It's, it's kind of inexplicable. Um, the story isn't really at all about American versus Chinese because the boy and the mother and the father are all un indisputably American. The mother chose to come to America uh, despite the fact that she was a male older bride. She made a choice to do that, uh, and that is the most American thing you can do. Uh, the story, in many ways, is a celebration of, of the Americanness of the entire family um, and the way that they have to um, deal with the racism of the society at large that tries to deny her uh, and him uh, their Americanness. Uh, and so, of course, you know, uh, that was the intent of the story, to, 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 to interrogate that attitude of who is an American, who is not. But unfortunately, has has often been read in the exact incorrect way as somehow uh, trying to present the boy as being caught between two cultures and being conflicted mm -hmm. between being American and being Chinese, which is not at all the point of the story. Do you think that's a, a reflection of the times? Uh, do you think that's an interpretation that will mature over the years, or do you think it's something I, that might stick? You know, that's a really good question. I, uh, you're, you're a more hopeful person than I am. <laughs> 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 um, I, I had always sort of interpreted simply as, uh, you know, a, a string of irreducible tendency to, 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 to reduce stories to the simplest possible interpretation and, and to posit uh, some kind of American identity that is synonymous with being white. Um, and, and I had thought that perhaps the story is just inescapably doomed to being misinterpreted. But, but your uh, question makes me think that perhaps you're right, that this is merely uh, a symptom of the times, that perhaps uh, in another 50 years, uh, if the story is still read, people will not interpret it in that way. Uh, and, and that is hopeful. Um, well, I'm also coming off of um, having just finished The Grace of Kings and uh, a decent number of your short stories in the paper Menagerie. And one of the themes that I noticed, one of the themes that sticks out to me in your writing is how we perceive the events of the past. Um, and in some cases in this writing, the, the events of the future. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seems to be a pretty prominent theme, at least in your your work the idea of how we perceive the events that are being told to us and that have happened to us from a position of distance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Ken, you have a pretty astounding body of work. So I was hoping, if you're cool with it, Kyle, that we just you know go into it one, one piece at a time. Well, I was going to say, I think uh, a nicer path there might be 
for Ken to walk us through how he got from the the short stories of the paper menagerie to writing something like The Grace of Kings, which is uh, very much a work that is larger in scope. Sure, I can I can definitely do that. So um, I've been writing for uh, a long time uh, since really um, my I think my first story was published in two thousand two or two thousand three. I can't remember exactly, but it's 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 a while ago. Um, and for most of my writing career, um, I was focused on short stories. Uh, I've published by now, I think, over 130 short stories. And The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories, the collection that you referred to early on, um, collects about 15 of those stories. Um, a lot of those stories uh, were picked uh, because uh, they, they seemed in some way to typify uh, my approach uh, and my, my thematic uh, choice. Um, but they, they span a variety of genres. Uh, I, I do write some hard sci-fi. I write a lot of sociological sci-fi as well, and, and quite a bit of uh, fantasy, uh, whether urban uh, or historical, uh, as well as some stories that are just not really uh, science fiction or fantasy, but like the paper menagerie itself, uh, a kind of magical realism slash um, fabulism type of story. Um, and, and the paper menagerie and other stories is a, is a good, uh, sampler of, of that body of my work. Um, after I had written a lot of short stories and sort of, uh, experimented with a variety of voices and, and themes and, and techniques, uh, I wanted to shift, um, my writing in a new direction. Uh, I wanted to try to tell a bigger story because the, the problem with short stories is, is that you, you create a world. And, and you go into it with some characters and you live there for a little while. But just as you're sort of getting attuned to the possibilities of the world, you sort of have to leave. Um, a lot of writers deal with this by writing a set of stories and setting the same universe so they can keep on exploring it uh, and, and, and tell a larger um, story arc involving multiple characters in the same universe. Uh, for for some reason, I've never been able to really do that, even when I consciously set out to try to set the same story in the universe, to set my story in the universe that I had already written about. Um, it just doesn't seem to work. Uh, I, I, I don't know why it is. It, it, maybe it has to do with the way I, I, I craft short stories in the first place because I don't, you know, I don't write things down. I don't, I don't take extensive notes about the world. So once I leave it, I, I leave it. Uh, and, and so coming back to it is very hard for me, but I wanted to try to explore a, a world that I create in, in more depth and try to tell a story that is large enough to, uh, to suit it. Um, and so that's how I ended up writing my debut novel, The Grace of Kings, uh, which is, um, a epic fantasy novel. Uh, epic fantasy, uh, as you can probably guess by the genre name, uh, tends to um, specialize in these large canvas stories involving multiple characters, multiple storyline plot lines, spanning many years, and, and ideally with a with a very large, well conceived, fleshed out world uh, in which the characters can play out their epic drama. Um, the, the Grace of Kings is, is one of those types of stories. I wanted to create a world that I can linger in for years if necessary and, and write a massive story. In. Uh, and, and so that's what I decided to do. Um, 
it, it turned out to be actually kind of an interesting uh, uh, story uh, in, in terms of uh, my struggles to, to, to tell the story. Uh, I'll, I'll start there. Um, my, a lot of my short stories are really short. Uh, uh, I think a large percentage of the short fiction I've written are actually flash fiction, meaning they're under a thousand words, a thousand words each. Um, the Grace of Kings, however, uh, ended up being uh, close to, I think, 200,000 words. Um, so when I started writing it, you know, I thought, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's basically like writing 21,000 word stories, uh, you know, you, you, and then just do it a couple more times. You know, how, how, how hard is that, right? Uh, you, you, do, you do 20 times the flash fiction, you got 20,000 words, and, and you repeat that 10 times more. And you've got your um, uh, epic fantasy novel. So if you can write one uh, flash fiction story a day after a year, you have your epic fantasy novel, right? Uh, so so that was how I yeah. how I how I began my my uh, my my approach. Um, it, it turned out that that was not quite the right way to go about it uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but the most obvious one is your brain actually isn't large enough to hold that much material in it all at once. Uh, this was something I had never experienced as a short fiction writer. Um, a lot, I, I know a lot of writers enjoy outlining things and, and, and writing extensive notes and, and, and fleshing out their outlines as they, as they get to their first draft. That was never approach. That was never my approach. Um, I, I'm, I'm one of those writers who's more of a, uh, fly by the seat of your pants type. And, and so I like to have everything in my head and then just draft based on that vision in my head. Um, for short fiction, this works because you can, in fact, hold all the details of the world that you need to know and, and all the characters and all their motivations and all their back histories and all of that in your head. Uh, and it's possible to finish the draft in a couple of days and then going back and refining it and, and, and making sure it all works well. That's that's all fine and good. And I've done that many times. And so I was very familiar with that process. But when you're working on a, on a you know, 200,000 word epic fantasy, that's just not going to work. Um, you you end up not being able to keep the large arc in your head. It's it's just, you know, it's like I it's like having a computer with insufficient RAM. It's just not possible to keep all that stuff in your head at once. You got to swap it out and swap it back in. And because my habit was not to take any notes at all, I had nowhere to swap it to. Um, so the more I, I, I tried to, 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 to work on this project, the harder it became. And I, in fact, had to end up learning a whole new set of techniques for how to write such a story. I ended up keeping... Go ahead. What kind of techniques? Because we've had a number of authors on the show that have told us about like new softwares that they've been using in order to kind of keep track of the plot lines within their books. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. That's that's what I had to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I actually ended up experimenting with a bunch of different things. It's 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 pretty funny. Um, I started out by trying to outline. And then I, I, I realized that I'm just not an outliner. Outlining things uh, for me just kills it. Uh, if I try to outline a chapter, I, I stare at the outline. And I'm like, what's the point of writing this stupid thing? I, I already know what happens. There's, there's no point. Uh, like, like having an outline and, and working on an outline 
basically kills the joy of telling the story for me. So I, I, I can't do it that way. Um, I ended up learning uh, how to how to do this thing very in a way that's very me. Um, I decided to keep a wiki. Uh, a wiki is not structured. You can you can do whatever you want with it. You can start new pages anytime you want to. You can you can uh, link things that 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 you you realize have some connection to each other. Uh, you you find a paragraph or a snippet that you enjoy uh, or you think is inspiring. You, you paste it in, and, and there it is. Uh, a wiki is very freeform and and just the right kind of associative um, database that I needed. So. I ended up keeping uh, a wiki uh, for the world of Dara, which is the world in which uh, the Grace of Kings uh, happens. Uh, and I ended up writing, I think, almost as many words in the wiki as I did end up in the final novel. Uh, the wiki is this massive thing uh, that, that's like a snapshot of my evolving brain. Um, and and I, I, I ended up really loving that approach, uh, using the wiki as, as, as a way to track the world and to construct the world as I was writing it. Um, and the other thing I learned that turned out to be really awesome and, and fun is to write fake science papers um, in the world. Uh, I, I know this sounds <laughs> super geeky, but uh, you know how in The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood had, at, at the end has this... Uh, this um, Postscript, which is basically a fake academic paper about how Gilead came to be, right? Uh, I, I know a lot of readers hated that. They, they they thought that kind of thing was just you know sort of breaking out of fiction. They, they you know fiction is about storytelling. Why do you have this science paper like thing at the end? Uh, but that was my favorite part of the book. I I, I love that sort of thing. Uh, I've I've always enjoyed reading science papers. And, and so writing science papers about a, about a magic world that you create is about as fun as I can imagine anything to be. Um, so that's that's how I did it. Um, so I, I do, would... you, do you love Ursula Le Guin? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, totally. The, or, the, the Orsinia uh, Chronicles yes. are the same exact thing. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I ended up doing. I, I wrote papers about the history of Dara's cultures and language and, and the animals and, and so on and so forth. Anyway, that was turned out to be very useful as a way to help me structure the novel. So what you're saying is eventually we will get those uh, science papers delivered Silmarillion style <laughs> about the history and culture of Dara. I, I, I'm not sure that would be a great idea. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure that, that I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that I am not going to do anything of the sort. Uh, the <laughs> papers are a lot of fun for me. Uh, I, I doubt readers would find them nearly as enjoyable as I have. Can I ask a, uh, what, a question you might not want to answer? Are they, sure, all, are they all from the same perspective? Are they all from the perspective of one scientist? Or do you take on the voice of different uh, historians and scientists when you write these papers? I, I take on the voice of different historians and scientists. Yeah, sometimes I write them from the perspective of a libertarian scholar critiquing Sarah. <laughs> uh, sometimes I, I go with uh, the voice of a revolutionary from later ages. Uh, it, it's actually a lot of fun to do things that way, too. I mean, it's essentially world building. You know, you're you're just building the supporting facts for this world that you've made up. So it's kind of fun because you get to, uh, you know, basically write whatever you want to in order to make your story work. 
Yeah, so, totally. I, I, I get to, you know, construct very elaborate things that, that, you know, ultimately maybe only one detail makes it in. But it, it's, it's so much fun and it gets me, you know, excited about, about the story. Were there any unexpected uh, challenges associated with this way of working? Uh, quite a lot, actually. Uh, so because, you know, I, I wrote the story organically, not, not from a pre-constructed outline. Um, what, what I, what I ended up doing is, you know, I, I sort of described it this way. Um, I had in mind a few pivotal events that had to happen, uh, to get the plot to the end. Uh, so, so. I, I set out to sail across the ocean and I see a few islands dotting the Pacific and I know I need to get to those islands. Exactly how I would get to each of the islands, I had no idea when I set out. And so that gave me a nice balance between having some structure and having no structure whatsoever. Uh, I mean, too much structure versus having no structure whatsoever. Um, it, it, it left enough room open that I could just explore while I was writing and, and telling the story and, and just navigate myself to each successive island. Uh, but because the islands were there, I, I wouldn't wander all over the map and, and just going off the end of the, you know, end of the world. Uh, so, so that was a nice way for me to go about it. Um, it's, it's the, the, the problem with this approach is because I was at the time writing, um, I, I was working full time, uh, uh when I was writing The Grace of Kings. And so I really only had uh, my morning and evening commute on the commuter rail to do the writing. And so despite all my efforts at structuring and and keeping things um, properly organized, I was writing this novel in 500 snippets at a time. Uh, and, and so uh, after the first draft was done, I realized that I did in fact uh, need to go back and then fix a lot of problems uh, because you know there were characters who I really enjoyed and near the beginning uh, and 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 then I just sort of uh, killed them off uh, and then I forgot that I killed them off so you know near the end of the book they came back and just started doing things and and then when I read the traffic I was like oh wow that's that's not good uh, and there were characters I didn't like and then I just sort of forgot about them and never mentioned them again and I was like well I, I can't just drop them. I mean, something happened to them, so I have to figure out what to do. Um, so, so yeah, there, there, there were things like that that had to be fixed. Uh, so, so that's the problem with you know writing your novel in little short snippets and not being able to focus extensively um, as much as I would have liked. When I am working on a project, whether it's you know a, a news article that I'm writing or like a publicity campaign that I'm working on, sometimes I am like really stuck in the moment. And no matter what I'm doing, whether it's like getting a beer with friends or dinner with your girlfriend or uh, you know about to go to bed, I just cannot get that project out of my mind, and I kind of live within it. Is that something yep. that you experience yep. a lot while you're writing either your short stories or your novels? And how do you turn that into something productive? 
Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, you know, once you get yourself immersed in a novel or a story, it, it does consume every moment of your life. And I think it's great uh, for that to happen because then you can you can really uh, linger over it and then work over the details. I mean, I think a lot of times people think about writing as though you're just sitting in front of the keyboard and banging words out. But that's actually the least, I think, important part of writing. A lot of writing happens when you're brushing your teeth or when you're walking to the train station and, and or when you're on the exercise machine, you know, any number of these things. If you can get the the project in your head in such a way that it's consuming every moment of your of your of your life, uh, that's actually a good thing because then in all the downtimes, uh, all the times when you're not in front of the keyboard, your brain is still working on it. Uh, and and helping you figure out how to solve all the problems and how to make the layers better, deeper, richer, how to get all the details to to work together uh, in the, in the same direction. Uh, it's 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 fantastic. I, I I find that to be like the best state to be in. Now, since you have just finished the second novel within this series, and it sounds like you kind of foresee this going as long as you want. Um, <laughs> Are you just constantly in that state? Um, I, I don't. Okay, so so let me let me do two things. One is I should I realize that I should actually explain to listeners what the series and the novel is actually about. Please. And, yeah. and two, um, I should also just say a little more about about just how far I really want to go with uh, Dara. So, um, okay. So the Grace of Kings is the first novel in an epic fantasy series called the Dandelion Dynasty. Uh, and the second book is already out. It's called The Wall of Storms. The third book I'm still working on, and it does not have a official title yet, so I can't say. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the three books are it for now. Uh, the universe can certainly support many more stories, and I could, as you say, go on forever. Um, but I, when I proposed the, the series to my publisher, I always set out to write only three books, at least for the first story arc, um, because, you know, I had in mind um, an ultimate island out there that I wanted to get to. Let's call it Hawaii. Um, you know, I, I, I know from the beginning that I'm going to get to Hawaii at the very end of the last book, the third book in the series, and that's where I'm going to stop. Uh, I have a... A story arc constructed to go from San Francisco to Hawaii, and 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 that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use three books to do it. Um, and if I eventually decide to come back to tell more stories in the universe, great. But this is this is it. This is it for this particular arc. I, I think it's important. I mean, I don't know. Uh, readers react to this differently, but I'm always somewhat frustrated by open-ended series that go on and on forever. Uh, you know, sometimes I feel like. I, I enjoy the first couple books in the series, and then when when there's no end in sight, I, I sort of get frustrated and, and I, anxious. I constantly have this this argument with people when it comes to t uh, TV shows. Yes, you know, it's yes. Like there there's a very very clear ending, and then it's it's obvious that the show creators and showrunners are just milking it for all it's worth. <laughs> right. I I I. I... Yeah, I mean, because I don't like series that do that. I, I set out from the very beginning to, to, to end it with a very clear story arc I had in mind, and that's where I'm going to go with it. Uh, but let me let me just uh, quickly explain to um, mm -hmm. to listeners what, what the Dandelion Dynasty is about. So it's epic fantasy, so that conjures up images of, you know, um, uh, the return of the king, uh, uh, you know, this, this, this pseudo-medieval European world in which the, 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 the everything is about 
restoring the rightful heir to the throne. Um, that that's not really what the Dandelion Dynasty is about. Um, it's uh, I I describe it as silk punk, uh, silk uh, the material, silk punk, um, and, uh, and 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 both parts are relevant. Um, the punk part is because it is very much a story about revolutions and changes uh, and empowering the disempowered. Um, and it's about reappropriating things uh, to, to serve new purposes. The silk part, though, um, requires a little more explanation. So the Dandelion Dynasty is inspired by classical East Asian history and classical East Asian engineering um, in the same way that, you know, steampunk is, uh, is very much about Victorian era technology and Victorian era mores and, and, and uh, uh, political concerns. Um, the well, maybe not necessarily, but the the the, the same sort of uh, conflict between empire and peripheral is is always there as part of steampunk. But anyway, in silk punk, uh, the the idea is this: it's the first book, The Grace of Kings, is in many ways a reimagining of the founding of the Han Dynasty in Chinese history. Uh, and uh, except instead of having the story take place in some sort of magical version of China, I set it on an archipelago that uh, really doesn't have a lot of East Asian influences in its geography or external features. Rather, the East Asian influence is felt through the culture of, of the people so we can inhabit it. Um, and the idea here is just as in steampunk, you try to extend the Victorian era's technology vocabulary. You know, you got this chrome glass leather look, and then you try to um, imagine, you know, how things could have been if, if, if steam-powered machines had evolved along that path and become elaborated and to do amazing things. Um, for silk punk, I took a lot of uh, East Asian classical engineering concepts uh, using silk and paper um, and, uh, and, and, and uh, bamboo and feathers uh, and animal hide and, and all these materials that are very important to East Asian uh, history and, and, and classical culture. And I try to imagine, you know, what would happen if you try to construct airships and submarines and, and all kinds of amazing machines, uh, battle kites uh, out of these materials. A lot of them are actually based on uh, either historical um, uh, uh, inventions or on uh, East Asian historical romances that try to imagine similar machines. Uh, but But so here's a world in which you actually do have these powerful machines constructed along these very old Chinese, Japanese, Korean uh, engineering principles. So I think one of my friends tried to describe the Grace of Kings, and they said it's, it's sort of like war and peace with airships. Uh, it's, it's like Romance of the Three Kingdoms, except you've got whale-like submarines. Uh, and then I'm like, okay, that sounds that works for me. Uh, so anyway, that's the description of, of what the series is about. Um, over time... Go ahead. Did you did you come up with silk punk or was that something that's already used elsewhere? I don't remember seeing other people use it. I mean, I can't claim that no one else ever used it before I did, but I just thought it made sense because, you know, I was trying to tell a story that is very steampunk like, except it's mm -hmm. based on East Asia and also uh it's very much about revolutions and reappropriation and, and trying to make old things do new serve new purposes. So it felt like the right thing for me.
Yeah, I mean, I had never seen it before, and it's it just so happened to make its way into every review that I read for the book. So, uh, good job on on coming up with something that will stick. You've created a brand. Yay! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, and it's interesting too because you uh, you do a lot of work with Chinese literature and you know in translation, and you actually we mentioned earlier that. Uh, the reason I, I discovered the paper menagerie is because it uh, had won an unprecedented Nebula, Hugo, and World Science Fiction Award. Uh, World Fantasy. World Fantasy. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, World Fantasy Award. Um, and you also won the first, was it Hugo, for work in translation? Yes. Uh, I think you're referring to the three-body problem. By yes. Yes. And and to our listeners who who don't know anything about science fiction awards, like all of those are are enormously prestigious awards, and uh, you know I, I don't think it's very normal for anybody to to win you know any of them, let alone multiple of them multiple times. And that's not to mention many of the awards that you have uh, that you also won. And I think you're nominated for a third Hugo. Is that is that accurate? Um, uh, I, uh, I'm trying to remember. I'm not nominated for anything this year. The the novel, um, one of the novels I translated, uh, it's, which is actually the third book in the Three Body series by Liu Cixin, uh, uh, is up for a Hugo this year. Uh, and I'm on the ballot as a translator. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, like, it's... I mean, this, all I mean to say by this is that you are, you know not only prolific, but very accomplished. And it's very clear that your work resonates with people because, you know, these awards don't get given to just anybody. So I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, really about um, why you are so prolific, not only with the scope of work that you put out, but also like the amount. Um, scope being like work in translation, short stories, novels, uh, and I'm sure I'm missing, you know, several other different projects that you're working on, but because um, <laughs> you also have a full time job. Okay, so let me take that uh, a piece at a time. So, okay, um, number one award. Um, I'm super super grateful, um, you know, for the fact that uh, fellow readers, writers, critics, um, and have seen fit to nominate me for various awards and have sometimes even given me one. Um, I, I will say, however, <laughs> honestly, that uh, that I, I, I almost never think about them. I mean, literally the only time I actually think about them is, is when people bring them up and ask me how I feel about them. Mm -hmm. uh, and my answer is always I'm super grateful, but I, I just don't think about them that yeah. much. Um, I mean, you, the, you had a line in, in a Boston Globe piece about you where you said, like, the only times that you mentioned your writing at work is when your colleagues con congratulate <laughs> you on the awards because you don't want to be the, the kind of writer that's constantly talking about, like, how uh, accomplished he or she is. Well, it's, 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 it's more than that. It's, more, it's just that I, I think, like, awards are, are complicated and people have difficult, complicated relationships with them. And, and then I think a lot of times um, uh, awards are very dangerous for writers because if, if they win an award and they feel like, you know, they did something magical with that story, um, then they're, they're going to be sort of inclined to try to repeat the magic. You know, you know what I mean? And, 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 and honestly, I, I think awards are really, really very, very arbitrary and fortuitous. Um, you, you get an award and you should be happy about it. 
Uh, but I, I really think it's very bad for me, at least, uh, to think about them very much. Uh, I always think that the best story that I'm writing is the one that I'm working on right now. The best story I've written is the one I'm working on right now, and that the best novel um, is the one that I'm still thinking about. Uh, and 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 for me to to give a lot of weight to awards would somehow I think. Um, prejudice me towards trying to recreate and recapture magic rather than trying to do something new. So I tend to not think a lot about award, books that have won awards or stories that have done well in the award circuit. Uh, I, I tend to almost deliberately avoid them because I don't want to do anything that that, that comes close to what they did because I, I don't think there's any magic. And in fact, it's better to to try to avoid them and then doing something, anything similar um, ever again. Um, the second thing I, I want to say is, um, as of just two months ago, uh, I actually uh, quit my job. Uh, oh, to congrats. become a full-time writer. Yes, thank you. Look uh, at you. Mainly, yeah, I know, like me. <laughs> mainly it's because I, uh, I wanted to spend uh, more time with my kids. Uh, the this, this routine where I was working a full-time job and trying to write at the same time was taking a toll on the amount of time I was able to spend uh, with my kids, and and that did not feel right. Uh, and and then I feel like, you know, if the, if there's one thing that I wanted to do well in this life, it's uh it's to be considered by my kids to be not a bad dad. Uh, and and so, uh, it was pretty important to me to to try to um, prioritize my life and make sure that I am spending enough time with them. So I I've made the jump to be a full time writer mainly. So I could actually spend more time with my kids. And, and so far, that's working out, which I'm very happy about. Mm -hmm. um, and so in terms of being prolific, um, I, I will say that a lot of that is, is purely um, uh, uh, an illusion created by the <laughs> publishing industry. Um, yeah. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Uh, I, I think uh, in 2010, 2011, somewhere around there, I published like 20 stories in one year or something like that. It's, it, it's, it's a large number. And and I think that was when this 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 idea that somehow I write very fast uh, came into being. People thought, well, you know, he published so many stories in one year, he he must be writing so fast. And uh, and I was like, listen, listen, a lot of these stories were written over like you know five years ago. They 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 happen to be published this year. It's not like I wrote them all, you know, <laughs> in, in, during that year. Um, it's it's just because you know I. I, I've been writing for so long and I, I haven't been publishing as much early on in my career that I had this huge body of, of, uh, of stories that I could then publish later on. So it created this illusion that somehow I was very fast. And ones that, um, that, 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 um, uh, that image gets into people's heads, uh, I, I think people tend to use confirmation bias to 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 read everything I do and, and and sort of perpetuate the idea that I write very fast. But in reality, I am among the slowest writers I know among my friends. You know, people keep on telling me on Twitter, you know, I, I wrote 3,000 words today, I wrote 5,000 words today, I wrote 10,000 words today, I wrote 20,000 words today. And I, I just look at this and I, my jaw drops, you know, I just, I can't do that. I mean, for most of my career, 500 words a day was a good day for me so it's uh it's pretty it's pretty funny for me to be thought of as as being very fast i wish i were fast let me put it that way so one of the things that we like to do on the show is to get into the weeds on like how 
these great creatives that we have on the show actually do what they do. So could you walk us through, um, A, how you or your publisher are applying for these awards, and B, uh, being like such an accomplished writer as you are now, if you have a new short story, you know, where do you go with that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Great question. Um, so um, there are a ton of different awards in the speculative fiction field. Um, and the funny thing is, for most of them, you, you actually can't do any kind of application. There are some awards where you can. Uh, I, I think one of the um, one of the small press awards actually does solicit uh, writers and publishers to ex- explicitly submit work to the jury for consideration. Um, but for awards like the Hugos and the Nebulas, uh, there's nothing you as the writer can do or should do. Um, what, what happens is, um, in the case of the Hugos, the, the voters, um, uh, basically people who attend Worldcon, uh, a worldwide convention of science fiction fans, um, have the right to nominate. And, and basically people just write in with a ballad of, of works in every category that they consider to be worthy of a Hugo. That's it. Um, I mean, you as a, as a writer, there's nothing you can do. Uh, you certainly can, if you want to, uh, you know, become an attendee at one of these uh, at Worldcon and nominate your own work. Uh, and I'm sure people do do that. Um, but that's that's just going to get you one nomination. That's not going to get you onto the ballot. Uh, it, there's there's really just not a whole lot of gaming you can do. Uh, I've heard that people do campaign for awards, uh, you know, like any kind of um, popular award. Um, uh, it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, the all-star game. You can certainly campaign for it and, 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 and get your fans to vote for you. Um, I've never done such a thing, uh, and I don't know how effective that would be. Um, but it just, it feels to me like campaigning doesn't quite, uh, match the spirit of these awards. Um, and so anyway, I, I can't say that I have a huge amount of good tips for, for, for people who want to win awards other than, um, just publish as many stories as you are proud of, uh, and then hope for the best. Uh, that's, that's my strategy and seems to have worked for me. Uh, and so maybe it will work for other writers as well. Um, in terms of, uh, if I write a story now, um, I, I don't actually write that many short stories anymore. Um, when I do agree to write a short story, it's almost always commissioned, uh, usually because uh, either there's an anthology with an editor that I really want to work with, uh, or uh, an anthology with a theme that I, I find is, is really interesting. Uh, like recently, um, I've been asked to um, contribute to, um, uh, the, the, I, I can't actually reveal the publication name, but it's, it's a big technology publication. Uh, and they they don't do uh, they don't publish much fiction and and so when they is it is it wired? Uh, it's not really. wired. It's not wired. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't say that. I can't say any more than that. Uh, okay. And uh, and uh, they don't do a lot of uh, fiction. And and so you know when the editor came to me and said you know we're we're doing a special issue, um, do you do you want to write something for it? And then here are some themes that we're thinking about. And and the theme really makes me uh, you know excited. And then I, I try to do it. Um, but I think for 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 most writers, um, obviously you know when you're writing short fiction, you want to get as much exposure as possible and you want to 
get into the into the most prominent market so that your work is exposed to as many readers as, as you can reach. Um, and that's, you know, still the same sort of calculus that I go through. What happens... Um... So when you're writing your third novel at the same time as this other commission comes in, how do you juggle both stories at the same time? Do you have a strategy for dealing with stuff like that? It, it's tough, and I, I can't say that I'm, in, I'm, I'm really good at it. Um, I set myself a goal for the novel, and I try to reach that word count every day on that project. Um, and when I'm you know, asked to do short story commissions or translations or other um, projects, I have to fit them around the larger project because I always sort of treat my novel as sort of the, 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 the most important thing. It's sort of like that old theory about, you know, how do you fit a large rock and a bunch of small rocks into a jar? You know, you, you, you have to put the big one in first. Otherwise, uh, you, you won't find the room for it. That, that's basically what I do. I, I try to fit the novel in because that's really important and I got to keep my head in it. Um, I have to work on it a little bit every day, not because, you know, I, I think there's anything magical about it. I just think that working on the novel a little bit every day, even if it's just a couple words, uh, 50 words, um, is a good way to keep my head in it. Uh, it's it's my, my brain still works the same way as before, which is, you know, swapping things in and out just is very costly for me. So if I just got to work on it a little bit every day, I get to keep it in active memory. And that's important and helpful for me. Uh, and then I try to fit the other stuff in um, uh, as I can. It seems like the 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 idea of active memory factors a lot into your workflow. Yeah, I would say that's true. I mean, I did work for many, many, many years uh, in technology, first as a programmer and then as a litigation consultant in patent cases, uh, patent and trade secret cases. So uh, this sort of machine thinking metaphor is very central to the way I think about the creative process. Tell, tell us all about uh, the Star Wars novel that you're writing. Okay, so um, so I have a very special rela relationship with Star Wars. Um, so when I was uh, a, a kid in China, uh, uh, I had never read any science fiction novel before The Empire Strikes Back, the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back. So you have to understand, you know, this was back when American movies were not being shown in China. So I had never seen Star Wars or, or anything like it. Um, so all I all I got to see was this book with this really cool cover with spaceships and lasers being, you know, shot out of them. And I was like, oh, what is this? Um, so so I, I, I picked it up and I read it. Uh, and this was the, the Chinese translation of the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back. This was my first exposure to a science fiction novel, my first exposure to Star Wars. Uh, you can imagine how confusing everything was. I mean, just, just, just imagine being thrown into The Empire Strikes Back and that was your first exposure to, to, to science fiction altogether. Uh, let alone Star Wars. You know, it was it was it was overwhelming, but I loved it. I thought it was amazing. You know, here's this universe in which good and evil had had actual physical manifestations. You you actually had these lightsabers that turned different colors. You know, based on if you were good or evil. Uh, you 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 could actually you could actually you know do magic uh, again based on just how pure your heart is. Uh, the the whole thing was uh, was was awesome, and you can sort of see where I got a lot of my 
my metaphorical approach to speculative elements uh, from um, this sort of mythical quality of Star Wars. It was very, very uh, powerful for me. And anyway, so uh, the fact that, you know, um, 30 years later, uh, I'm being asked to, to, to join the Star Wars universe by Lucasfilm Publishing uh, to contribute my little piece to it. It's, uh, it's just, you know, overwhelming. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's, it's one of the happiest days of my life when I was asked. Um, and so because and was, my, was that my, just out of the blue it was out of the blue yeah it was out of the blue it was it was awesome it was it made me so happy um, I love that and and uh, and, uh, and and the thing is you know because I'm so into the mythical quality of Star Wars I'm so interested in the way um, Star Wars is, is is really fantasy you know told in the language of science fiction um, my book, which is called uh, The Legends of Luke Skywalker, um, is, you know, I, I can't say more about much more about the book right now than than the title and, 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 and what I've said so far, my love for the universe and, and how excited I am and how it, it really is going to be about Luke. Uh, it, it's about Luke and it's about Luke's role in the Star Wars universe. But I can't say more than that because, you know, uh, Lucasfilm has a, has a very, very carefully devised, designed uh, marketing plan they want to follow as they reveal the contents of each book. Uh, but this is a book that leads up to the the next movie, leads up to The Last Jedi. Can, um, can and, I ask questions ahead. and you can not answer? If <laughs> no, they, uh, no, 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 no. Do not, do not play no. that trick. Okay. <laughs> Once I go down that route, <laughs> I, I, I am going to be in serious trouble. So no. <laughs> <laughs> Had to try. Had to try. No, uh, no, totally understandable. A valiant yeah. try. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, on that note, uh, we have authors on this show mostly to talk about one story they've always struggled to tell. Uh, and we do that to contextualize it for you because, uh, you know, when we created this show, Kyle and I had a lot of trouble writing these stories because we were worried about uh, how it would affect specific readers, uh, mm-hmm. those readers being people that were very close to us in our lives. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, that is less of a problem today than it was when we started the show, but uh, it's still you know a nice conceit to get some of our favorite writers on the air. So uh, we had asked you previously to write out uh, a couple ideas for stories that you had struggled to tell, and one of them was the story that's the tail end of your uh, collection from the Paper Menagerie called The Man Who Ended History. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was hoping that you could talk to us about it now. Uh, and it's obviously, you know, uh, for anyone listening, it's not a, a very lighthearted story. So, um, you know, I'll let, I'll let Ken take it from here. Sure. Um, so The Man Who Ended History is, um, uh, is a story about time travel, if you will. Uh, but it's not, it's not time travel in the sense of going to the past and changing the past or anything like that. Um, it's a story really about history. Uh, I mean, we talked earlier about the meaning of history and about how we react to the past. And, and this is a story that explores that. Um, the, the story uh, imagines that it's possible for us to recover the past by witnessing it, uh, not, not by changing it, but being able to basically return to the past and to observe atrocities as they were happening. Uh, and in this particular story, the scientists 
couple who invent the technology go back to uh, witness the atrocities committed by Unit 731 at the Japanese Imperial Army, um, which set up a camp uh, in China uh, that is uh, a concentration camp, essentially, for uh, human experimentation. Uh, Chinese, Korean, Russian, and other allied uh, civilian prisoners uh, were sent there where they were um, vivisected uh, and subjected to all kinds of tortures uh, in the name of scientific experimentation. Uh, the women prisoners were raped, um, impregnated, and then vivisected uh, to um, basically um, both as a form of sex education uh, as well as a form of uh, experimenting with uh, human embryo development. Uh, and, and and other horrific things of that sort. Uh, these experiments rivaled um, uh, the Nazi experiments, and in some cases, uh, uh, some of the things that the Japanese Imperial Army performed were in fact, uh, had no equivalent uh, among the Nazis. Um, interestingly, uh, these horrific acts uh, are not only unknowing the West, um, uh, they, are, they have largely been uh, 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 covered up, uh, as a result of the fact that General MacArthur um, pardoned all the um, doctors uh, who who worked uh, at this facility in order to gain their expertise for biological weapons research uh, after the war. And so uh, to this date, uh, denialism of, of uh, uh, Japanese Imperial Army uh, war crimes during World War II including uh, what happened uh, in Pingfang uh, by, by Unit 731 uh, is a widespread phenomenon. Uh, uh, as, um, uh, you know, as somebody who, who, who's, uh, whose grandparents uh, were directly affected by the war, um, to, to deal with uh, the kind of denialism that surrounds these atrocities uh, is, you know, very similar to how uh, I think a lot of uh, children of Holocaust survivors feel uh, about those who deny the Holocaust. Uh, and so I wanted to write a story about, you know, what happens if we try to, uh, you know, if we had this technology for us to witness the past, would this finally uh, kill off denialism? If, if you can actually witness these events, would that make denialism no longer possible? Uh, and of course, the, the answer is it's, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, and so the story turns into a meditation on, on, on the meaning of history, on who owns history, uh, who has the right to investigate the past, why do people deny? Uh, and it became incredibly hard to write because one of the things I wanted to do is uh, I wanted to make sure that I gave the denialists uh, the best argument possible. I wanted to make sure that I represented their view um, in as, um, as convincing and, and, and as uh, empathetic a way as possible. I mean, it sounds strange, but I, I really believe that it's very important when you're trying to tell a story to tell the story so that uh, it, it presents, uh, you know, maybe this is the lawyer in me, but I've always believed that you must present the other side's argument as powerfully as you can uh, if you want to convince people of something. And so uh, I spend a significant amount of time uh, researching denialism forums and talking to individuals who are denialists, who deny that the Japanese Imperial Army committed any war crimes at all, and then who claim that everything that, I, that we know to be true are in fact only manufactured lies by the Koreans and the Chinese um, uh, and all the uh, other 
uh, victims of the allied uh, countries uh, that Imperial Japan conquered. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 I spent, I think, uh, eight months to maybe a year investigating uh, these forums and talking to people who are denialists. Uh, and, and it's very hard to try to be empathetic to people who would deny that you're alive at all um, or you're human. Uh, many of these denialists are um, unabashed um, supremacists, Japanese uh, imperial supremacists who believe that um, you know, everything Japan did during the war was correct, that Japan was the victim, uh, that the Chinese and the Koreans are subhuman. Uh, and, uh, and, and some of them uh, would articulate these views uh, in a super um, academic, um, uh, 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 reasonable sounding way uh, that, that, that made it impossible, really, uh, uh, on some nights for me to even sleep. Uh, it was it was very very painful to go through this, uh, and then I I'm not sure you know I don't recommend this experience for for most readers you know just in the same way that I don't recommend that you go browse Holocaust denial forums and try to engage with these people. Um, it is what it is, uh, but but for purposes of my story, um, I I wanted to make sure that I presented their view in the most empathetic way possible, and I had to you know get inside their heads and learn how they think. Um, that was an incredibly, incredibly painful process. And, and, and I think uh, there were moments uh, when I felt suicidal uh, uh, because there's nothing that will make you despair of humanity um, and, and give up hope in humanity as trying to, uh, to deal with um, and, and to engage with people like this and trying to empathize with them. Uh, and so I went through that harrowing experience. I wrote my story and I'm still very proud of it. Uh, it's the story I'm most proud of, which is why it's the last story in my collection. Uh, but uh, I would not go through that experience again. Do you think that now, how long ago did you write that story? Oh, I can't even remember now. Uh, not, not that long ago. Uh, I believe I wrote it perhaps eight years, eight, nine years ago. And has the, the passage of time softened that experience? Has it clarified anything about the story for you? No, I, I don't think it's softened anything. If anything, it's it's made me even more, um, you know, certain and, and committed about some of the conclusions I, I drew in there. Uh, I, I think the story still is a very powerful um, uh, and, and, and authentic uh, feeling about the complexities of history. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the passage of time has just made me even more aware of the importance of defending history. Uh, and, and trying to assert the truth and trying to tell the truth, um, despite um, the the forces of denial. At those times when you felt the most affected by it, when you were writing it, how how did you keep going? How did you keep putting yourself back into this world where it was nearly costing you? It was costing you a lot, clearly. It was. I was. I was thinking that you know it's it's important to do this because. Because these events have largely been forgotten in the West, or or they're not known at all, and and I thought it was important that, you know, if I if I allow that to stand, if I if I didn't put in the effort to try to write the story I needed to write to tell the story I needed to tell, and then I'm letting uh, the denialists win, um, and 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 that was not acceptable. Um, you know, there's there's a moment when all of you. All of us are called on to stand up against evil, and I felt that was the moment that I was called to do so, uh, and I had to go ahead and, and keep on going. 
uh, despite the personal cost, because it was important to confront evil. Was there a reason you chose to uh, couch it in science fiction as opposed to fantasy? Uh, I'm not sure I remember exactly why I chose to tell the form that I did. Um, I do remember that it's the form that I chose to tell storying is is in fact very important because it's a story about the truth, and yet I had to couch it in the form of fiction. And and so this is a story in which everything that I was describing had to be true, despite the fact that I was explicitly presenting it as merely a story. Um, and I, I I think those those contrasts were were very important to the way the story worked and, and to its you know complicated layering and and the way it explores these ideas. And I thought that a science fictional framework, um, uh, which is, you know, how in the modern world we sort of perceive as the way to, to the truth, uh, to me, was, was the more appropriate metaphor than a fantasy one. So, Ken, where can our readers find more, or where, <laughs> readers, where can our listeners find more of you online? So, um, Listeners who are on Twitter can follow me on K-Y-L-I-U-99. That's my Twitter username. Uh, or they can go to my website, which is Ken Liu, K-E-N-L-I-U dot name, N-A-M-E. Um, and uh, when they go there, they can also sign up for my uh, mailing list, uh, on which I talk about my short fiction, my novels, my translations, and also where uh, readers can find me uh, if they go to cons and readings. Excellent. That was perfect. Thank you so much for joining us, Ken. Thank you very much, Jeff and Kyle. Uh, It's a pleasure. That was Ken Liu. The book that we discussed in this interview was The Grace of Kings. You can find Ken Liu online at kenliu.name. K-E-N-L-I-U dot name. Uh, He's on Twitter as well, so let him know what you thought of this interview. Uh, How cool is that, that he's writing a Star Wars novel? Oh my god. I mean, uh, I will confess to having read several of the Star Wars novels. Nobody is surprised by this. Um, I even read through every every novel of the Young Jedi Knights series which I feel like some people wouldn't cop to, but it was like, I spent so many hours of my youth trying to make things fly into my hand. Again, nobody is surprised by this. Um, you fucking nerd. Uh, I got, it's very exciting to get to actually talk to someone who's writing one of these stories now. I'm, I'm pumped. If you want to check out his works for real, just Google The Paper Menagerie. io9 published it in full. And you can read it for free. You don't have to pay a penny. uh, And it will convince you that you should buy all of his books. Uh, And you can get him on Twitter at Kyliu, K-Y-L-I-U 99. Um, He has a super dramatic profile photo. Uh, (laughs) All the best, too. All the best, too. You can find us online at www.podcast.com. We're now on Spotify or iTunes, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It doesn't matter. I've painstakingly put our show everywhere. Uh, We want to thank Ken for coming on the show. Uh, We want to thank Ryan Dan for doing the music at the top and the bottom of the hour. Uh, Ryan Dan is from Holland Patent Public Library and is a... uh, 
you know, really talented composer and writer, um, and you should check out all of his stuff and subscribe and buy and, and do all of the fun things. Uh, we also want to thank uh, Ben Sound for providing the music that you heard in the middle of the show. Uh, bensound.com. This is a Creative Commons piece of music, and we're super happy with it. Uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. We're not going to tell you who's on the show because we have a few different uh, options, and we don't know which one we're going to go with yet. Probably going to flip a coin. So. We also want to be mysterious. Yeah. We don't know who's going to be on the show because we're loose cannons, both of us. In any case, thank you so much for joining us. Let us know what you thought of this episode on Twitter at www.podcast, or you can shoot us an email at www.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we really appreciate hearing from our listeners. We've gotten a couple of really nice notes, and it makes us smile. So thank you. Uh, and we'll see you in two weeks.